Grace is the perfect word. Because I can't tell you how many times I've advised on this conversation and had it myself where this magical thing happens where when you are honest with someone and you've followed this process and you were to say to me, you're Deepa, you were to say to me, hey, Jonathan, you know, we've been working together for the last couple months on this. We've had a lot of, you know, we kind of recap and a lot of feedback. And I just get the feeling that, you know, you know, whatever it is, it's, you know, it's not that you're not trying, it's, you know, there's good intent yeah. there, but something isn't working. And I just wonder, like, maybe this isn't the right role for you. Maybe this isn't the right time in your career for this type of a thing or whatever. Like, can you take the weekend and just think about it and come back to me? Like, what, what, where do we go from here? Right. And what will happen is one of two things and one of two things only. That was a false start. Karin, you have developed a self-awareness of who you are and where you want to go. But now what? Sound familiar? In my 20 years of practice as a superior court mediator, clinician, executive coach and parent, I've noticed one thing above all. No meaningful transformation can happen unless you find and apply the tools and skills that are right for you. See, the thing is, without tools, without a recipe, you might as well flip a coin and hope it works. Or you'll get burnt out listening to bad advice and following tips that may not be necessarily useful in your situation. I have been there and I've seen thousands of clients right there as well. My name is Deepa and Recipes for Life is my show where you and I learn the ingredients of high-performing, well-adjusted humans and how they get through their own life, all to create a recipe for life of our own. Today's guest is Jonathan Raymond. Jonathan is the founder and CEO of ReFound. He works with executive teams to help them create a shared leadership language based on ownership, accountability, and personal growth. ReFound's clients range from the Fortune 10 to startups looking for a fresh, and sustainable approach to both leadership development and manager training. Over a 20-year career, Jonathan has thrown his heart, mind, and soul into corporate change projects in technology, clean energy, and business coaching. He's madly in love with his wife, tries not to spoil his daughters, and will never give up on the New York Knicks. By the end of today's conversation, you'll have new ingredients to manage your accountability, values, boundaries, and consequences. You will also hear about the biggest risk Jonathan took in his life by really listening to his inner voice, why he wrote a book called Good Authority, and created a program around authority, alignment, and accountability. You'll also be given an accountability dial and will learn directly from Jonathan on how to use it in leadership conversations. Jonathan also talks about why it's important to be more Yoda and less superhero. I know, I know, sounds like a lot, but just trust me. Before we jump into the episode, make a note that I want you to teach what you've learned to someone you care about within 48 hours. Research shows that it'll help you internalize the tools beyond just listening to them. Without further ado, I give you Jonathan from Refound. You know, I really, before we get into like the heavy conversation, 
I do want to ask you about this cold plunge thing that you do. Tell me more. Yeah, like what is, yeah, tell me more about that. I, I like to think that uh, I was on the bleeding edge of things uh, like 25 years ago, where so many of the things when I lived in the Bay Area in the early 2000s that were sort of trendy and cool are now like mainstream. And uh, so when I was like, you know, 2000, 2001, when I first moved to the Bay Area, I used to go up to Harbin Hot Springs and they, they had, you know, hot, hot pools and all different kinds of things. It's up in Lake County. And they also had a cold plunge. And I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. Like you go into a hot plunge, then you go into a cold plunge. I loved it. I felt so refreshed. And so every chance I get, you know, over the years, I've always, I love jumping into cold water. And um, yeah. somehow I missed the boat during the pandemic. It became a thing again during the pandemic. And I was a little bit late to the party. It was like bread making. Like I, I was like really late to the bread making sourdough party. Uh, but I was a little bit late to the cold plunge party, but I, about a year ago, I restoked my passion for cold plunging and I bought one and, uh, stuck it on the back patio and I use it every day. I go in for about five minutes and, um, yeah, I love it. Just helps with sleep, helps with inflammation, helps with stress, mental acuity and focus, all the things. So you are telling me that you are this super cool person way before the Wim Hof method, because that's what totally. happened to it. Totally. I, technically, Wim Hof was following us. No, I'm just kidding. He, <laughs> he's great. I don't, I'm not a particular, like, he's a, he's a, he's an out there dude. Um, I like listening to him sometimes. I don't particularly follow uh, his yeah. methodology, although I think it, it's, I think it's fine. I, I mean, definitely he should get the credit for like popularizing this thing. Uh, yeah. but it's like, you know, when there's a really popular yoga teacher, it's like, well, the practice has kind of been around for a while. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I love just I a love, few thousand years, just a few thousand years. I know you want to take credit for it, but it's been around a while. Um, but yeah, so I, wait I love a cold plunging and all that. Um, you, you recently bought a big cold plunge equipment. <laughs> Tell me about that. What brand it's, is it? You love it. <laughs> Um, I bought the, uh, it's the one that was from Shark Tank. I think it's just called Plunge. It looks like a oh. big, like, like angular bathtub. Um, yeah. Some of them are crazy expensive. Uh, this one's only, only moderately insanely expensive. Um, okay. But yeah, that's where I bought. And it's called Plunge and do you love it? I love it. It's great. It just works. It's all, it's, it's all it has to do is work. It's pretty simple, but it saves uh -huh. me, you know, like trying to fill bathtubs with ice and converting my freezer in the garage. I know you can do that too. There's a lot of like, if I was a better plumber, I'd probably make my own. But in my case, it was just easier to buy one. <laughs> a friend the other day talked to me about just buying like a food freezer and just sitting yeah. in it. I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't work. Yeah, it works. A lot of people did like, you know, if you have one of those, like those freezers where you can, with uh, the top loading freezers and you can yeah. set it up. I don't know. There's, there's all kinds of DIY videos on YouTube. You can line it in a certain way, set it to a certain temperature. But uh, we, we used it for frozen foods. If we're old school, uh, we use our freezer for <laughs> for food. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. All right. So really quick, before before um, we get into, again, the meat of things, uh, what's your favorite food? Do you mm. cook? Wait, before that, before that, I have to ask a bigger question. I Do love, you cook? I love to cook. Okay, I would say I'm a, decent, be great I'm a decent cook. What was that? We can be friends. I said that will be great friends. Yeah, I love to cook. I would say I'm the primary. I'm the primary 
person who thinks about food in my family. My wife likes to eat, uh, but I like to cook. Um, Sounds like my husband, Jonathan. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, but uh, yeah, I love to cook. I mean, I would say my favorite food, which I do actually do sometimes at home, is I love Japanese food. Um, not only sushi, but I love, you know, all of the, just the the umami flavors and the way they think about seasoning and the the simplicity of it. I, I love Japanese food. That would be my favorite cuisine. Um, is there any particular like rice or like soy sauce or that you buy that's like a common condiment around Japanese food? Like I mean, brand, I, do, like... I do a lot of things with like the mirin and the... Uh, um, the, uh, you know, just kind of the combination of the rice wine, sorry, the rice vinegar seasoning yeah. and became halfway decent at making sushi rice. Um, so things like that, you know, that I okay. throw in there. Of course, okay. of course, I love wasabi, but, you know, who doesn't love wasabi? Right. It's too spicy for me. Oh, as an Indian, I probably shouldn't say that, but it is spicy for me. But Trader Joe's is my place to go for all of these things. Where do you buy most of your products? Food. Uh, we've got a, there's a small chain down here called Jimbo's. Uh, I don't know if it's outside of oh, San okay. Diego County, but there's three or four of them around here, and that's usually where we go. And then uh, we've an we've amazing farmers markets. You know, it's one of the a lot of people like to uh, you know make fun of California, but you know farmers markets pretty cool. Yeah, no, no, oh, I love farmers markets. So buy local, support local. Yeah. Yes, every chance I get. All right. All right. So I am so excited that we are having this conversation. That I've read it twice now. And I want to just kind of deep dive into it because am I correct in making the assumption that you wrote this book and most of the methodology that you use in the, this book is part of your launch that you did years ago for Refound, your company? It is, yeah. Okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure. So, you know, when I first uh, read the book last year, I didn't mark this, but when I read it this year, I was marking this. You talked about your uh, this whole epiphany that you had, that you knew something was wrong, and but you just didn't know what was. You were at this high-paying job, attorney in Manhattan, and then you decided that you're going to quit. And then you told your boss you'll quit, and then you went for a silent retreat, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you said... You said something happened and it was an experience of myself. Can you speak mm. a little bit to that? Yeah. You know, I had, um, I was living in New York City, uh, grew up on Long Island. So I was a very sort of New York creature. Uh, I didn't grow up in a particularly spiritual family, uh, very loving family. But, you know, the, the concept of a, of a power or a force greater than one's own brain was not really a concept that we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about other than, you know, my family sort of thinking that anyone who felt that way was kind of nuts. And uh, so, so my background was very sort of literal, scientific, academic uh, growing up. Yeah, but when I was in, you know, it kind of started in college and I started experimenting with, you know, with meditation practices of various forms uh, and psychedelics in, in other forms. And uh, it was later on when I was in New York and I was uh, just about to become a lawyer where I picked up the practice of meditation for real and I became serious about it. And I started working with actually a therapist who taught me how to meditate. And it was kind of part of our therapeutic practice. So I started meditating 
you know, half hour every morning, 45 minutes every morning. And then, you know, anyone who's ever lived in New York City can relate. You know, I would meditate in the morning and whatever peacefulness I had accomplished, uh, I would step out of my apartment, walk, go down the elevator, enter onto the sidewalk. And then, you know, within a couple of minutes, I've like completely lost my mind. And, I, and any semblance of like mindfulness has gone out the window, let alone by the time that I went to work and, you know, kind of was doing the things that I was making money. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I was just really unhappy. I was single at the time. I didn't have a meaningful relationship. I felt like I was just really lost uh, relative to who I was and, and what I wanted to be and feel it, basically just feeling like I wasn't on track to a future that felt right in my bones. I just knew that something was off. And I had started this practice of meditation. You know, I was going to classes at night. You know, like when I find something that I think works, I'm like, I'm all in. I don't like mess around. I'm not like a dilettante about it. I like go for it. But it doesn't matter if it's meditation or cold plunging or being married. Like I'm, if I'm in, I'm in. Otherwise, I'm out. And so um, I decided to go on a meditation retreat to uh, see what would happen to me if I extended my 45 minute sessions to like seven days. And, uh, I remember vividly, you know, I got a ride from someone, I didn't have a car and I got a ride from someone else who was going to this retreat and driving up, I think it was highway 91, just panic. Like, what am I doing? Like, this is a terrible idea. You're going to spend seven days in silence. Like, look at yourself. You love to talk. You want to be, you're very social. Like, are you nuts? Uh, but the person didn't let me out of the car. Uh, and so I ended up in uh, West Barnett, Vermont. Uh, this would have been probably the fall of 1999, I guess. And, you know, the first couple of days of that meditation retreat was, you know, utter misery. You know, it's like people think about, I know you know this, but people think about, you know, meditation, you know, it must be so peaceful. I was like, are you kidding me? It's horrible. Like sitting alone with my thoughts, it's horrible. So, uh, so I did that for a couple of days, but I was, you know, a really earnest practitioner and I, and I knew there was something to it and I had read a lot and I was, you know, I was on board with the philosophy that I had learned. And so I just stuck with it. And then at some point, and this will sound, you know, this is going to sound a little bit out there, maybe a lot out there, but there was a valley, uh, the, we were on the side of this hill and there was a valley. And on the other side of this valley, there were these dogs that were barking at some other property. It was probably five miles away. And we would hear these dogs barking every day. And, you know, from a certain perspective, you would be like, oh, this is so annoying. Like, why don't they just be quiet so that I can meditate? And, you know, I probably had some of those thoughts for a while. And I, and I honestly don't know what triggered it. But, it. but there was a moment, a specific moment where my consciousness shifted and I was the sound of the dogs barking. I was that. And there was this moment of transcendence where I was no longer Jonathan Raymond sitting in uh, a room in a meditation center, having a set of experiences and struggling with them. I was all of those experiences and I could travel to all of those different places. I could travel to the other hillside. I could be in the space in between. I could come back to my body and out. And, and I was literally like in this rolling epiphany of, oh my God, this is what I've been wondering about 
hoping for for years, but I had no ability to articulate, right? If somebody would have asked me, what is the experience that you want to have? I could have made something up, but I never would have had the words to articulate that experience of, you know, some people would call it a oneness experience or a transcendent experience. Doesn't, re doesn't really matter for the purpose of our conversation at the moment. Maybe, maybe we'll later. Uh, but it was a, but it was a moment of peace, deep abiding peace that I had never experienced, uh, in my life up to that point. So at that point I was my late twenties, I was probably, you know, 27, 28 years old. I was a pretty restless kid. Uh, as you know, like a very, you know, me a bit, I'm very active mind. I'm you know, always into new ideas and trying new things. And I just felt real to myself. And I felt like I could be with my life. I could be with my emotions. I could be with my mind. And I didn't need to change anything. And even the act of trying to change something was utterly ridiculous in that moment. It was like, well, what would be the point? And so that moment was really the, the beginning of the rest of my life. I mean, it's a peak experience, right? Peak experiences don't last. Um, but it informed... Uh, really every moment of my life since then. I'm 51. And uh, I look back on that retreat and that moment um, as the start of the rest of my life. As I'm hearing you speak, I can almost feel as if we were back in that moment, almost what, 25 years ago? Yeah. I can almost feel that because you have the same energy around it that you probably right. did in that moment. But I can feel like, the fact that it was so profound. Mm. And I think at some level, what I've heard you say earlier is that I wasn't feeling myself. I knew something was not working. I knew I was unhappy about something. It almost felt like that instinct that you sort of let yourself go and dive into it. You found something because you really stepped into that experience fully. Even yeah, with a little you know, bit of apprehension. Was, yeah, and I think that was the, there's really something that, um, you know, I've had a few times in my life where I had that type of discipline and focus to really go deep on something. And I find that it's advice that I give to a lot of people, almost like it doesn't matter which practice you choose, but practice it and follow yeah. it through to its conclusion. And so few people do that, it seems. It seems like we're all stuck at the buffet trying all these different types of things. There's no right way to, there are many ways, let's say, there are many right ways, but it was this process, the discipline of saying, hey, no matter what happens, I'm going to come back to the feeling of the air coming in and out of my nose. That's it. And I'm going to come back. And it's so boring. It's so not sexy that you essentially, you wear out your crazy mind, but you have to stick with it long enough to wear out your mind jumping back and forth to have a new experience. Yeah. And this is very true in the therapist world um, is that when we tell our clients when they're ready and we tell them to just sit with it, sit with the experience, sit with the emotions, sit with the thoughts, sit with nothing. When there's that moment and we want people to like really deeply, consistently sit with it, this is exactly what I'm, what we're talking about. Like you have to be able to give yourself completely in to know what's out there. Yeah. And we're, you know, our culture is the exact opposite of that, where it's so, we have so much based in speed, 
you know, we could geek out on the, you know, sort of the, our addiction to dopamine, but we're, we are constantly in forward motion solution mode. And then at work, which I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll talk a bit about, it's on steroids, right? But we're, we're in this divided mind, speed addicted, task addicted, solution addicted mindset. And the irony is we think we're going to actually make progress in some way and feeling better about ourselves. And we're just perpetuating the stuckness. Yeah. And we don't even realize it, but we're perpetuating, perpetuating the stuckness. Wow. All right. So we went in deep right away. I love this. So a quick, a quick follow-up question on this. So let's say for someone else without quitting their job, how can they get this experience? How can they get that? I, I, I love my job, but there are parts of it that I don't like, or maybe there's something here that I don't know, but I can't quit it. But I want to do something like find myself. How do they get to that experience? The way to do that, you know, a lot of, you know, let's say it this way. Being able to quit your job is a luxury for, for most people in the world, right? Having a job is a luxury for a lot of people. So I don't want to set it up uh, with the idea that you have to quit your job or drop out on some way in order to have these experiences, because it's just not the case. But there is something that you do have to do. And it's counterintuitive, which is you have to stay in a place of discomfort long enough in order to learn something new about yourself. And so when you're at work and you're in an uncomfortable environment, which is almost always the case, you have to pick something about that environment and say, you know, I'm here to learn something about myself. The company has whatever it has. The toxicity here is whatever it is. My manager is whoever they are with whatever flaws they have and whatever imperfections. But I'm going to use this experience of this job at this time in my life to learn something about myself. Now, what is that thing that I'm going to learn? All right, that's an interesting question, right? That it's, you, know, you, have, to, you have to investigate that. But you've got to stay in. And that takes a strength that uh, often takes another person to help, right? Because we're, we all want to be comfortable, right? We all have Amazon.com, right? We can get any product we want. You know, I ordered something last night at 11 p.m. and it showed up on my door at 3.30 in the morning, right? Like, we live in a ridiculous world where we can have whatever comforts we want, like within minutes, no matter what it is, seemingly. And yet, the secret to happiness is to be in discomfort in the right ways. So we're 180 degrees away from that in our normal waking consciousness if we don't do something about it. So we're at work and we can do something about it and managers can help people do something about it, not by being jerks or by being micromanaging, but helping people, hey, what's something that I can help you work on? What's an element of your personal growth that you can lean into here for as long as you're here. If you're here for a year, if you're here for 10 years, doesn't matter. How can I help you do something that's outside of your comfort zone? Not 80% out of your comfort zone, because that doesn't work. That blows past, tries to blows past the defenses, doesn't work. People fail, then they get disillusioned, feel shame, everybody loses. But 10 or 20% out of your comfort zone, what does that look like? That's the interesting question. And we need to create 
frameworks and places where that's not only possible, but encouraged and supported. Either as a person who is going through discomfort or as a manager who's, uh, who's seeing that their team members are going through discomfort, how do we get people to create that level of awareness that what you're feeling right now is a whole lot of discomfort? Because trust and believe me when I tell you the years of work, everybody wants to escape from it and they want to put the blame on somebody else or they want to deflect it, right? Nobody yeah. wants to stay with it. So how do we get people to say, this is where the learning happens. Yeah. You know, I'll give you an example. I was talking with somebody uh, yesterday or maybe the day before. And he said, you know, he's an individual contributor in a kind of a mid-sized company. And he said, you know, I don't know what to do. This sucks. I hate my job. It's like, great. Well, tell me what you hate. And he's like, well, you know, I feel like us as frontline employees, we have all of the information and none of the authority to make any of the decisions. And the executives have none of the information and all of the authority to make the decisions. And I feel like we make really bad decisions as a result. And I said, great. And he's like, well, what do we do to solve that? And there was like a bunch of other people in the conversation and everybody offered a suggestion. And I, and I asked him, I said, can I ask just like a kind of an initial question? Have you ever said that, what you just said to me, have you ever said that to anyone at the company? Hell no. No, I've never, I feel like, and I said, okay, that's where we're going to start, right? So how do we start? We start by starting, right? But we always go three, seven, 25 steps past what you just described before is like, well, if I'm a manager or employee or an executive, it doesn't matter. And I see somebody who is in discomfort of some kind, I'm going to name that. I'm going to say, hey, my sense is that this is a bit out of your comfort zone. Is that right? Just that, just that act brings humanity, brings oxygen, brings curiosity, brings empathy, brings motivation. Because someone says, oh, thank God, somebody actually is paying attention, sees me, and wants to help. We haven't solved anything yet other than we've created the conditions for something new to happen. So that's what has to happen first, almost always. And it's almost always the step that everybody misses because they see that place of discomfort and they go, and they start giving advice, right? Like, hey, what you need to do is act or like, stop, shut up, stop, stop. I don't know if I've ever used it in a client setting, but I love it. No, Yeah, you got to really have a good relationship with your clients to be like, just please, please stop talking. Please stop talking. <laughs> but I, I, it's just so simple, isn't it? Just the naming of what our primary emotion it is or feeling or behavior that we are feeling in this instant. It's just yes. naming it, it's acknowledging it, it's validating it, any of those things. Yeah, and because what will happen, sometimes that will be, that will take its own sort of organic uh, evolution from there in a moment. But a lot of times yeah. what will happen is the person will immediately apologize for how they're feeling. Okay, now we have, so, hey, wait a second, why are you apologizing? Like, that's okay. I've been in situations yeah. like that. I, I, I know there's things that, hey, here's something I'm working on right now that's uncomfortable for me. Really? Oh my God, wow. I've, what an amazing manager. What an amazing leader I have. They're willing to be a little bit vulnerable with me. Like, this is not rocket science. It's really not rocket science, but it's incredible and, and depressing how rare it is. It's, the, it's literally a different language, right? We don't know how to speak with each other, especially in the context of work, but it happens in parenting and relationships. And it, it's, it's the same phenomenon everywhere. We're so quick 
we we were so we are so conditioned to believe that emotions are a problem that we have to get over them we have to get past them we have to get through through them instead of seeing actually just be with them and everything will be solved from there everything will be solved from there Don't be vicious where it's that simple, that everybody could just do that one thing to start a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And like you said, it's not rocket science, but it's just something that's so doable. But for some reason, it's culture, condition. We just don't find ourselves doing that. And we find ourselves doing everything else to resolve it, which won't help. Well, and that's why I, by accident, I created the accountability doll because I saw how difficult it is for people to do that. And I said, okay, well, how do I make it simpler? How do I give a framework to essentially keep people from speaking too much about too many things with too much authority too early in a moment? Like I wanted to break down the moment. And that's where that idea came from is, you know, how do we actually create a new language for conversations at work that's that's just de-escalated where we can actually do this? So that's where that tool came from. And I love the segue into this because honestly, my next question was around accountability. And I would just tell us a little bit about everything, not literally, but everything about accountability dial. <laughs> well, so I'll tell you how, I'll tell you its origin story. So I was, uh, so before I had created this, before Refound really existed in its current form, I had a you know small bunch of clients. I was basically broke trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I had this idea, like very, very loose idea around Refound and good authority, but I didn't have any tools or frameworks kind of winging it. And I was talking with this one CEO, really sweet guy. And he was having an issue with his general manager. And, you know, we were just in a, you know, coaching call. And, and I said, well, you know, have you had, have you talked with him about that? You know, what you're saying to us, have you, have you had that conversation? And he said, no, I haven't had that conversation. I'm going to go, I'm going to, you know where this is going. I'm going to go have the conversation, right? And I didn't, I wasn't, I just, you know, I wasn't lucid enough as a coach at that moment. I thought, oh, great. Good job. You know, good, go for it. He did. And, uh, he came back like a week later or two weeks later. And he's like, oh, I had the conversation and it didn't go well. And I was like, wait, 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 wait what happened? What do you, and I said, I told him his performance was unacceptable and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh. I was like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 slow down. What happened? And so I said, ah, okay. So you went to 11 on the volume knob. I wanted you to go to one, right? And so, right. so and he was able to fix it. Like we went back and he owned it and took care. It was, he was great. He was very vulnerable with it. He's like, wow, I got some, I got some good coaching, but I took it a little too far. Uh, and so that was really the origin of it was seeing that, you know, what happens for managers, it's natural, it's inevitable. We observe people behaving in ways that are self-stagnating or, or team stagnating or, or organizationally not what we want. We observe those behaviors. They look small. We don't really feel the urgency of intervening. The ROI of like sort of making a big deal of it seems low. So we let it go. Then we get a little bit more frustrated. Then we talk about the person behind their back. Then we have a bunch of conversations with HR. Then HR says, well, you need to give them feedback. We don't do that. Then we may try to manage around them. And we make a whole bunch of compromises and, and workarounds. And then at some point, we get frustrated enough 
we think it hasn't bled through into that moment, but it has. And they know we're frustrated. We have zero appreciation for the fact that the only reason we can see the problem is because we have the authority and they don't. We have context that they don't. Right. So we're actually right. behaving incre with incredible arrogance. And then at some point, we get enough frustration in the mix that it boils over. And then we do what this leader did. We have, we have the conversation. We get, I need to give you some feedback. Or we go to HR, we put them on a performance review or whatever the thing is, right? And I haven't said this phrase in a while, but I used to call it spontaneous management combustion, right? Where it's like... Anyone read just, that in your book? Yeah. It just happens in a flash. And then the person's like, what the heck? Like, where did that come from? Like, you've never said anything before. I don't know what, what is the context for this feedback. From the manager's perspective, it's like, what do you mean I never said it before? We've had this conversation 10 times. No, you haven't. Feels like you have. No, you haven't. And so that was where we created the accountability. It's like, okay, we need to create a common language where managers and employees can get to a shared reality of like, where are we? Like, are we actually in the same reality? What is the pattern? What are the impacts of that behavior? What's the boundary? What does growth look like? What's my responsibility? What's your responsibility? How, what does it mean to take in feedback? What does it mean to give feedback? What responsibility do you have as a manager? So we basically took, you know, all of those algorithms, let's say, and tried to make it really simple for people to find a way to talk with each other in a human or humane way um, in the context of a fast moving, high pressure situation so that the conversations lead to greater humanity instead of less. And what does that, uh, first of all, everything that you said, I just want to acknowledge that most of the leaders that I work with can completely resonate with that. Like this is just how it all happens, right? So how does the accountability look like? What is the first step on the dial? The first step in the dial is what we call the mention. And it's essentially just what we were talking about before, which is the naming of or the asking of a simple question that's not loaded, right? So it could be, you know, hey, I noticed something about the last few proposals that we sent out. You know, I'm, maybe I'm misreading it, but I just, you know, I got an impression. I wanted to check it out with you. Or, you know, I heard something. I was trying to like reading between the lines in the team meeting this morning, and I heard something that you said, and I wasn't sure if you meant this. Like, did you mean that? Right? It's that it's literally just raising something that hit your awareness, hit your consciousness in some way, and you're, and you're thinking about it, you noticed it, you're observing it. It's just an attempt to get to a shared reality with another human being that you care about, that's on your team, could be a direct report, doesn't have to be, could be a peer, could be someone more senior in the organization. And it's, it's really just trying to create uh, more closeness and greater intimacy uh, on your team by naming what you see or asking a question about something that you didn't understand uh, to try to create uh, more connection with the people around you. I, I love that uh, framing because most people, like when I just think of the people that I usually um, have been working with, um, some amazing people, by the way, imme immediately there'll be like some level of skepticism around it and they may think that it's micromanaging. So how do we differentiate it from micromanaging? You know, uh, I think it was Google did a, did a huge study. This was probably coming on 10 years ago now. And they were trying to understand this internally at Google. And what they said was, you know, everybody hates micromanagement, but mm. 
everybody loves micro development. Oh, okay. And that's the really important distinction. Like nobody wants to be micromanaged about the work, but if it's about me and my growth and coaching, well, yeah. oh, I want that mm -hmm. every day and twice on Sunday. Right. And, you know, when we go into organizations and we say, we say like, how many people are getting feedback on a regular basis? Everybody raises their hand. And I say, okay, wait a second. How many people are getting developmental feedback? All those hands go down. So we're getting feedback all the time. I don't like this. I don't like that. Where are we with this? Go faster, do more, blah, 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 blah. Disconnected from the human being who's actually doing the work. Nobody wants that. But if it's about me and my relationship to the work and my relationship to myself and my relationship to the development of my career, bring it on. But we, again, we don't have a grave language for making a distinction between those two things. So if somebody says, hey, listen, you're kind of micromanaging me, that's what I'm kind of feeling, we're like, wait, that's not what the experience should be. It's actually micro-development. Yeah. If somebody said to me, right, hey, I feel like you're micromanaging me, right? I'd be like, oh, tell me more about that. Can, can, I, I, can you give me some examples of where you feel like uh, I was micromanaging? Oh, well, we were in this meeting and blah, 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 blah. We're like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, I could see how you would feel it that way. Let me reframe it. The reason why I raised it is because in our one-on-ones, you've been talking about, you know, wanting to take on this greater responsibility. And, and I think actually that type of task is actually key to being able to do that. And I wasn't clear about it in the moment. Sorry, my bad. Uh, I was moving too quickly. But so if I reframe it in that way, does it make sense? Oh, yeah. Wow. When you say it that way, I get it. Thanks. That's super cool. You mean you can help me with that? Yeah, I can help you with that. Yeah. So even as a leader, for, when somebody comes and tells this to you, what I'm hearing you say is that rather than getting defensive and say, I'm not micromanaging you, you're like, wait, I'm curious about why you feel that way. And just, I, I want to understand more and I'm not going to get angry or defensive about it or pissed off that you said I'm micromanaging. Amazing. So tell me something, if the mention doesn't work as well, what's the next step? So the, if we think about the architecture of it, like if you had a friend in your life and you and you thought that they had a problem with drinking, right? Or if you thought that they mm -hmm. were, there was something about the way they showed up in their relationship with their partner that you didn't like. And you, you let's say you were, you know, sitting at dinner and you made a passing comment, right? Like a, a man, we could call that a mention. It didn't work. What would likely happen? You would time, some more time would go by and you would start to see other instances of that behavior, right? So the next step in the dial is exactly that what we call the invitation is to come back to that person. The mention, they didn't, they didn't pick up on your hint, so to speak. They didn't take ownership of it and accountability. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so you're raising a pattern. So you're saying, hey, you know what? Actually, I said something at dinner the other day, but there's actually been a couple of other moments where I saw something similar, maybe not exactly the same, but it seems like a pattern. And I think it's worth thinking about. Like, I don't think that's the, your best you. Um, or I think, you know, in some way, it depends on the nature of your relationship with that person, or, you know, maybe they've said to you, Hey, something I want to work on is X, you know, you've said you, this is something you want to work on. And I think this is actually counter to that. What do you think? Right. And in the context of work as a manager, the key to all of these steps, as we go through is that none of them are punitive, none of them, they are all from the perspective of, hey, I'm somebody who happens to be at this point in your life in a position of authority. 
however that came to be. That's what, that's what is today. And part of my job is to help you see opportunities for growth. It's part of my job. It's not just to manage the work. It's to help you find opportunities for growth. And how I'm going to do that, I always recommend leaders, like, just be transparent. Tell, don't, it's not a secret. It's not some, like, secret playbook that you keep in your back pocket. It is, hey, if I see something that I think is you being less than your best self, I'm going to name it. That's called a mention. If I see that pattern continuing, I'm going to name that. It's called the invitation. If I see you not thinking about the impacts of your behaviors, I'm going to name that. It's called the conversation, et cetera, et cetera, as we go through. And so that architecture is, it's simply, you know, I've, somebody said to me once, they said, Jonathan, I feel like, I, didn't, I wasn't insulted by this. They said, they said, it looks like what you would do with somebody that you love. And I said, yeah. Yeah. That's, what, that's how you would treat a conversation or a set of conversations with somebody that you love. Yeah. And, you know, that, I was just thinking, and when you brought up the example of a friend before, right, before we translated to work, I was thinking I would do this with somebody that I really, really love or care about. So what we're actually saying is that at work, also we want to care about all the people that we that work for us, that work with us. Yeah, you don't have to like them. You're, you're not getting married. You don't, they're, not, they're not necessarily going to be lifelong friends. That's not required. But you do have to care. And if you don't care... That's what it is. Yeah, if you don't care about someone who's on your team, well, you should go talk to somebody about that. Yeah. Because maybe they're not on the right team. And guess what? If you don't care about them, guess what? They can feel it. And nobody wants to be on a team for very long for a manager that they know doesn't care about them. And there's a very high likelihood. It's like, you know, Gallup puts out this data every single year. The numbers don't change. 80% of employees or whatever it is are disengaged or undermining the company. Like, how do you think that happens? It's not rocket science, right? It's because they don't have a manager who cares about them. So if you don't care about your employees at all, you shouldn't be a manager. Go do something else. It's cool. Like there's lots of things you can do in the world besides being a manager if you don't care about people. But if you care about most people, but you don't care about one person, like do some self-reflection. Maybe there's something about them, spoiler alert, maybe there's something about them that you're judging that you actually don't like about yourself. And that's why you have a hard time working with them. Yeah. Or somebody that, you know, this is the word I'm going to use may not be the word that people want to hear, but um, certain people, you know, they'll trigger you because they remind you of somebody else in your life. You know, and it's important to create some self-awareness around it and differentiate between the person that's actually annoying to you and your work person. Anyway, the whole another conversation. Conversation brings me to, so I feel like this, this third step in the accountability dial, the conversation is kind of a pivotal piece. It's a, it's a big piece. It is. You know, we, okay. uh, we have this reflexive tendency in our culture to try to escape accountability with empty apologies, right? So we say, oh, well, I'm sorry. I, that's not what I meant. Who cares? Like, since when does that actually, like, it's like, you know, we have a lot of very high profile criminal cases. And I don't know when uh, this goes live, but, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried was just convicted uh, today, you know, yesterday of seven counts of fraud. And it's 110 years. Imagine if he went to the jury and said, oops, I'm sorry. It's not what I meant. 
Like, that's not how it works, people. I don't care what you meant. I care the impact that it had. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's nice that you feel bad about it. That's good. That's a, that's a good first step. But accountability isn't, I'm sorry. Oop. That's part of accountability. But the rest of accountability is taking ownership of the impact of what you did. Which doesn't make you a bad or an evil person. Well, maybe in Sam Bankman-Fried it does. But for most of us, most of the time, we have negative impacts on people around us. We do. We're imperfect. We make mistakes. We have negative impacts. And when we apologize without owning those impacts, we make it worse. It's worse. It's just hollow. Because when somebody does something to hurt you and they go, oops, I'm sorry, then you go, oh, wow, they, now they, they not, before I wasn't even sure that they know what they did. Now I know what they did and they didn't care and they're not going to do anything to fix it, right? So it's like, you know, be careful what you ask for, like with, with, with manager and they say, well, I'm really, I really want feedback, right? And then you give it to them and they don't do anything with it. You're better off not asking. If you're not going to do anything with the feedback, don't ask. So, so the conversation step a lot of times, and again, we have to remember power dynamics. So if, Deepa, you're my manager and you're using the accountability dial with me and you've called out something, mention, invitation, something that I need to work on, there's a very high likelihood that I'm going to be coming from a place of fear or at least anxiety that your estimation of me is going down and I'm going to try to get my way out of that feeling because that feeling is uncomfortable. So you've got to be really mindful of the power of that moment as my manager and you've got to say to the, in effect, look, we all do it. It happens to all of us. But what I'm really interested in is not so much your intentions. I assumed your intentions were good. You were trying to get something done or you were trying to get some information out of this team. But, but let's talk about the impact that it had. And shifting that conversation from the intent to the impact, not because I want to rub your nose in it because I think you're a terrible person, but because when you understand the impact, now you have something you can work with to actually make a change. When it's generic, I can't do anything with it. It's not actionable. So I need to understand the impact. And a lot of times, I, didn't, I don't see that impact myself. I need you to point it out to me. I need you to help me. Well, I don't know what the impact was. I need you to ask me some questions. So that's why that third step of that conversation, again, it's not punitive. It's discovery. It's curiosity. It's trying to help somebody gain insight into themselves and something that if they knew that they were doing it, they would want to change. Yes. Yes. Oh, gosh, Jonathan, there's so much here. Uh, I'm so glad one of the important key things that you brought up is intention versus impact. And when I do a lot of inclusion work, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you have great intentions, but really you need to understand the impact of your words, the language the tone, everything that you're doing. Like, um, and it's, it's, I feel like it's just probably one of the most valuable things for managers to really understand that. And when they understand that, then everything gets better. Like the conversations get better, what, how they do things get better. Now, let me ask you this. Conversation also hasn't worked. Then what? <laughs> uh, so, if you think about, you know, I think it's really important to remember to, to not let ourselves get split between work and life in the following way. So if we have a financial goal, 
or a health goal or a fitness goal or a relationship goal or a development goal, self-development goal, what works? Well, we know what works are boundaries, right? That's how human motivation works. We need to know one of two things. It's either a goal that I'm gonna, that I wanna get to, that if I don't do this thing, I'm not gonna reach, or a pain that I'm trying to avoid, right? So a good financial advisor is gonna tell you, well, if you don't put this much money in the market or do these things, then when you get to this age, you're gonna be broke, right? There's a boundary, there's a consequence, right? A relationship coach or, or therapist is gonna say, well, if you don't listen to your partner, at some point, your partner is going to stop sharing with you, and then that's going to have these things, and, it, and it's going to continue to degrade, right? If you don't quit smoking, right? If you don't stop eating sugar 10 times, whatever the thing is, right? We know this from our personal lives, that boundaries matter. They work. And it's really, really helpful when someone we trust helps us either create or reinforce a boundary, right? If you have somebody in your life who's an addict, it doesn't help to not confront them for 50 years. It doesn't help. At some point, you have to, if you love them, if you care about them, you have to say, hey, look, I can't do this anymore, right? So that's what a boundary is like. And it's, it's a critical element, not only to the growth of that other person, but to your own sanity. And so many people, especially coaches, right? We never set boundaries. We never, we're willing to let this person bleed out on the floor for years. Why? Why do we do that? And if the answer is, well, because they're paying their monthly fee, that's really sad, right? Then you got to find some other way to make money in your life. If you've created codependencies with your clients or with your patients, and unfortunately, this is a very common phenomenon, right? Where helpers and healers create these codependencies because they're getting something out of it. They're getting their emotional needs met. And you got to be honest with yourself as a coach or a counselor or a therapist in life and work and relationships. Who's this really for? And if you don't ever set boundaries and take a risk where you say to a client, hey, look, if you don't do X or if you don't take this seriously, I can't work with you anymore. If you never find yourself in those types of conversations, I'm telling you, you're in a codependent relationship with your clients. 100% agreed. I've seen this happen over and over again. And, but coming, coming back to post-conversation, what, what, what's the next step? Nothing's working. Like Boundaries are important, but nothing's working. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the boundary first before we wrap up that, which is okay. boundaries. And it's not just for negative things, right? It's positive things. Hey, this person's doing great. And yeah. uh, I think that they might be eligible for a promotion to this next role. But there's a couple of things about their approach that need to get a little bit better, right? But it needs to get better by, as a certain set of things, it need to get better by a certain time. That's a boundary. So a boundary is not just, hey, you're messing up and you got to stop messing up. It's you're doing great. But in order to get to this next place, here's what needs to change. So what needs to change by when and, spe and specifically, like what does winning look like for someone to feel that they've made this change, whether it's building on a positive or removing a negative? 
and making that explicit. So if you're a manager, it's not a performance review, right? This is a conversation. This is a human relationship with someone that you're trying to help them grow past something where they're stuck to get to that, you know, 10, 20% past their comfort zone because you care. So that's the boundary, right? And it's, again, not punitive. It's, you could ask, hey, what would a boundary look like that would be helpful to help you make this change, right? We've been having this conversation. So then next uh, we go, the last step in the dial is what we call the limit. And, and we actually just gave an example, two examples of, hey, I've given you all the feedback that I, that I can think of. We've had a bunch of conversations about it. I've given you all the advice that I know that, that makes sense to me. It's really up to you at this point. And it doesn't mean I hate you. It doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It doesn't mean you're fired. It doesn't mean I'm never going to talk to you again. It just means I, as the person who up to this moment, you had enlisted to help you, I feel complete. That's all it means. Now, we might start a new helping cycle in some other format on some other topic. But for this topic here, in this moment, our relationship, that's, I've done my part. I feel like I've done my part. Maybe imperfectly, but I feel like I've done my part. And, I, and I, in order for us to kind of revisit this topic, I would need to see substantial, sustained change yeah. from you. That's your accountability. So even at the limit, there's still an opportunity to uh, acknowledge, grow, change, or willing to like, hey, I hear you. These are the things I should have been working on. I totally get it. Can I get one more chance? Right. So even at the limit, there's grace. Yeah, and and a grace is the perfect word because I can't tell you how many times I've advised on this conversation and had it myself where this magical thing happens, where when you are honest with someone and you followed this process and you were to say to me, you're Deepa, you were to say to me, Hey, Jonathan, you know, we've been working together for the last couple months on this. We've had a lot of, you know, we kind of recap and a lot of feedback. And I just get the feeling that, you know, you know, whatever it is, it's, you know, you, it's not that you're not trying, it's, you know, there's good intent yeah. there, but something isn't working. And I just wonder, like, maybe this isn't the right role for you. Maybe this isn't the right time in your career for this type of a thing or whatever. Like, can you take the weekend and just think about it and come back to me? Like, what, what, where do we go from here, right? And what will happen is one of two things and one of two things only. They will either come back to you and say, wow, that was hard to hear. You're right. And I had to do some looking in the mirror and I realized, you know what, isn't the right time for me or I don't actually, I've kind of lost my motivation. I'm going to go look for something else or whatever it is. That's one option. Or I heard what you had, had to say, and it really pissed me off in a good way. And it really lit a fire in me. And I, and I got to some, I went to talk to my sister and I was venting and I said, my boss is a jerk and blah, blah, blah. And my sister said, your boss is right. You do do that. This is a terrible quality. You should change it. And, it, and you've been trying to tell me that, Deepa, for the last couple months, and I wasn't listening, but I get it now, and I want another chance, and you're going to see something different from me. Can I have that other chance, right? And it's that, um, it's like, you never see the movie Molly Stone or Molly's Game? Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> there's a great, if anyone wants to a great example of somebody taking accountability and grace and what mercy looks like, great, uh, what's her name? Uh, Jessica Chastain. Uh, it's based on a true story and she I goes love to her. court. I love her. It's great. It's great. It's one of my favorite movie scenes of all time. And basically her lawyer's trying to get her to like, you know, 
uh, fight and, you know, try to get out of this thing or whatever. And she basically gets up in front of the judge and pleads guilty and takes ownership and says, yep, I did that. I did that. I did that. Yep. I understand. No excuses, no blaming. That's me. You're right. And the judge said, all right, well, uh, clearly you've taken ownership of your actions. I'm, this is the non-movie version. Like I'm going to let you go. Right. Because I can't enforce any consequence on you that you haven't enforced on yourself. What am I, other than I'm just being punitive for punitivity's sake, right? Thanks. And it's that ownership. And that's like the whole purpose of the accountability dial is only to get people to take it on themselves. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And they've learned the lesson they needed to learn in order to move forward. Yeah. I love it. So mention, invitation, conversation, boundary, and the limit. Did I get that right? You did. So, you know, as we were talking about it, um, the other thing that you said, uh, and you've said this before, and uh, you've said this in so many of our conversations, I've heard you in our training with Refound, is this, uh, the integration of personal and professional growth. And you said in your book, you said it became your life's work. Can you Mm. tell me a little bit about that? Well, for me, I was on a split mind journey for a long time. So when I was in my late twenties and I was, you know, getting into meditation and yoga and somatic psychotherapy and psychedelics and regular counseling and alternative counseling and health and wellness and deep emotional work and trauma and, you know, you name it, all the things, right? Uh, I often say to people like, if there's something kooky and weird that you can try and experiment on yourself, I probably tried it and I can tell you about my experience and hopefully be helpful. But The problem was I was doing all of those things at night and on the weekends and then basically ignoring those things during the week because I was trying to make money and have a business and, you know, become successful. And I didn't know how to integrate uh, all the things that I was learning, like valid things I was learning about myself into my daily waking life. And so I was, I, I didn't know I was split, but I was split. It wasn't conscious to me until it was, right? And someone happened to be my wife who, who uh, in a moment of great vulnerability for me, uh, cared enough and loved me enough to say, hey, pal, I think that's your problem. I think your problem is you're working on yourself over there and you're working on yourself at work over here and you think it's two different things and it ain't. And, uh, that was like, you know, deer in the headlights, you know, crossbow right between the eyes. And I was like, uh, yeah, she was right. And so I thought to myself, well, I know she's right, but what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And that's when I started the exploration, which ultimately would become refound was like, what if I do that for myself and I stop trying to work on myself outside of work, but I work on myself at work. And what does that look like? And what is that algorithm? And what, and I need a language for that. And how do I, I was a manager, I was a senior executive. How do I, how do I try to embody that language without bringing in, uh, you know, it's not about like bringing psychological practices directly into the workplace or, or bringing specific religious or spiritual viewpoints. Like that's really problematic. Like I'm not trying to create a cult, but how do I bring 
the wisdom of those experiences in a format that makes sense. Like what's an authentic version of personal growth in the workplace? And that was the, the journey that I went on in myself just to solve. I was really, it was very selfish. It was not altruistic. It was like, I'm in pain. I suck at this. I want to get better. I want to feel better in myself. I want to feel better in my life. What do I do? And it was through this process of trying to heal my own pain that, uh, that I started to do some things. And I thought, oh, that, that actually might help somebody else. And people started noticing and said, hey, I, I really like what you're doing there. What are you doing there? And I, then I was like, and then I started teaching it and, you know, eventually wrote a book about it. And, you know, here we are. Here we are. Well, uh, as a therapist, as a clinician, I really want to acknowledge another thing, which is that you actually did the work. You followed your instincts. You knew something was wrong. You did the work that really needed to be done. And you continue to do the work because the work never ends, right? So right. having said that, before we even get to ReSound, you have good authority. So what are the core tenets of good authority? Let's focus on the big one because I think it's okay. really a... Uh, it's an endemic, maybe not a pandemic, but it's, a, it's endemic to our society, which is that we, we think from a very early age, we're conditioned to think from a very early age that being an authority means fixing and solving things. And it's misguided. That's not what a good authority does. A good authority doesn't fix and solve other people's problems. A good authority creates the space and the conditions for people to solve their own problems. So that's what the book is about. And we have a real problem, and I was patient zero, where especially for really smart, capable, technical, talented people, of which there are many in this world, it's really hard to do. Because everything about our education system, everything about the way most of us were parented and socialized has us deeply, deeply conditioned to believe that our value, our identity is in our ability to fix and solve. So becoming a good authority is nothing less than a shift in identity as a leader. It's not a tactic. It's not a set of tricks or best practices. It's about changing who you think you are relative to your ability to influence and help other people. Wow. Changing who you think you are, shift in identity. How do we unlearn? Slowly, slowly, um, slowly, but surely. And it's like anything else, like any building any new habit incrementally, you know, small wins, all the, you know, the tool, the reason for the accountability doll, the reason why that tool exists, which is detailed in the book, is that that's how you do it, right? Is essentially just start small, start anywhere. Start with anyone. Start about anything. Start at home. Start with your kids. Start with your, your, in your marriage. Start with your parents, right? Start with your dog. I mean, you, I don't know. Start with your dog. Yeah. Yeah. If you, meet good, if you meet a good dog trainer, you quickly realize they're not training the dog, they're training you. Right. <laughs> but what I want to bring up is another amazing tool that I love is more Yoda, less superhero that speaks to people in authority, that speaks to leadership. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit more about more Yoda, less superhero? 
the number one job of any leader who wants to be good at the people part of their job is you've got to figure out how you're playing the superhero. I promise that you are 100% money back guarantee. You are in, in some form, you're doing it. The question is only how, what are the contours of that superhero? It doesn't necessarily look so obvious, right? In some cases, it's really obvious. Like right. you're on every email thread, you're in every meeting, you make every decision. That's uh, an obvious mm -hmm. version of it, but there's a lot of non-obvious mm -hmm. versions of it. So that's the first task. But there's some way that you are playing the backstop for the team. You're doing other people's hard work, whether it's technical work or emotional work, collaborative work, self-reflective work. You're doing it for them on some level. How are you doing that? You might be doing it in different ways for different people. But how are you doing that? Because that's the once you know that, then you can be like, oh, okay, well, that's, those are the moments, those are situations where I need to practice being more Yoda. And then you just name, hey, here's a situation where in the past, I would jump in and try to do this for you and try to give you advice. I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's in your best interest right now. Come to me when you need some help. So there's a whole level of self-awareness here that leaders need to like really understand and acknowledge when they're being more superhero, they need to be less of that and more of Yoda. And in my case, I changed that name from Yoda to Gandalf. I hope that's okay with you. Yes, that's fine. Totally acceptable. Because <laughs> that's what I do with my work with my coaching quest. Because nice. Gandalf, I love. I had Gandalfs in my life for amazing pipery. What is your favorite Gandalf quality? The thing that I've really experienced um, in my own life around that is that when Gandalf knows that you're really ready, but you don't think you're ready, and they just leave you at the cliff and just they just push you off and say, "You got this. Go do it." Yeah, nice. Because you're like, no, 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 I don't got this. I'm like, no, you got this. Bye. Get it done. Right. Yeah. And if, nice. it, if you fail, we'll come back and learn from it. If you, if, if it doesn't, then there, you got it done. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I think that that's, it's a really important thing to call out because we, we live, I don't want to be one of those people who uh, makes a sort of a too generalized statement about this, but there is a truth to the fact that uh, there are certain generations of parents that have done too much coddling, too much handholding, too yeah. much, uh, what do they call snowplow parents? It's not just helicopter parents. It's like snow or road grader parents. It's road grader parents. Like remove all of the friction and bumpiness from the road in front of your child. Not helpful. Feels good in the moment. It, it helps you manage your anxiety, but that's about it. But anyway, coming back to... I really want to ask you this question and I, I, I like underlined it. So you said in your book, culture is not content, it's context. Yep. Okay. So just speak to me briefly around this, but what I really want to ask you about, about this is how do we, how I have a lot of uh, amazing clients who deal with some really pretty toxic cultures, right? And where's the starting point to have the conversation there when it feels like there's no space to do that? Well, so let's let's start with the first question you asked, which is uh, culture is content, right? Like when you ask people, um, depending upon their mood and how much they want to try to sell you something, but if you ask mm. them about their culture, they'll tell you a bunch of stuff. They'll well, we have a culture of this. We have a culture of that. Our values are X, Y, and Z. We really value blah, 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 blah. And then when you talk to the people, they're like, yeah, we don't do any of that. Like that's actually none of those things. Like, so it's like, those are our cultural 
aspirations, maybe. That's how we wish we were, right? If we called it that, I wouldn't have a problem with it. We say, here's our cultural aspirations, which we know we are not living up to today. Great. Well, now we can have a conversation. So a lot of times, uh, you know, I'll ask, uh, and we'll come back to the toxicity question. I'll talk to CEOs or CHROs and I'll, you know, and they'll say, well, accountability is one of our core values. Oh, oh, to really tell me more about this accountability core value. When's the what? Tell me about a situation where somebody was held accountable and what was the consequence? What do you mean? I was like, what do you mean? And so like, we have these, it's nonsense, right? It's like, there's no accountability. There's no consequence, especially for toxic assholes, right? So don't tell me that you're, you have some core value about accountability. Actually, you have a core value of not accountability. Do you want to change that? Are you interested in actually having a real conversation about the gap between where you are and your aspirations? Okay, well, now we can have a conversation. And I think about, you know, when you ask, you know, how do you start the conversation when it doesn't seem to be space for it? There's an old uh, sales mentor. I never met the man, but he was a mentor of mine, even though he doesn't know it. He's a real jerk from what I heard from other people, but he said some smart things. And he said something that I always try to follow when it comes to sales is you can't lose something that you don't have. So when I'm talking with potential clients, like I'll rather, rather read them the riot act up front because then I get a measure of who they are because they want to sell me on their culture, buy. Because I only get, I got to talk to three people and I can tell you that everything that you say about your culture is mostly bullshit. Not that it's wrong in terms of an aspiration, but it doesn't have it. There's no accountability to it. There's no consequences relative to it. I can help you create them if you want, but I can't help you create them if you won't be honest about where it is, right? It's like family who comes into the therapist's office and says, oh, no, no, we're fine. Well, why the <laughs> fuck are you here? Oh, have I heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> We don't have problems in our marriage. Really? Tell me more about this amazing, beautiful domestic bliss that I'm observing right now. So first is really like uh, getting them to acknowledge or see if they can acknowledge what the problem is. Yes. Where the gap is. Be, well, it's be like, realistic you know, again, about the, yeah, it's just like to go back to the, I think addiction is such a great place to start a because you can always work back from addiction, right? It's like, what's the first rule with an addiction? You cannot help an addict until they admit they have a problem. First rule, right? Hard but simple, yes. yes. Hard but simple. You can spend your whole life chasing them, coddling them, caretaking them. You cannot actually help them until they admit they have a problem. So you should not spend a dollar with a coach, let alone a lot of dollars with a coach or a coaching company unless you can admit that you have a problem. Yeah. Can you say that one more time? Because I've yes. said this so many times, but I feel like people don't hear it. Yeah, I mean, it's really like, a, um, it's, it's really, uh, I, I love, there's another thing, it's also with an individual, uh, one of these coaches, I'm forgetting his name, he's a, this guy, knew, actually knew, he's a really lovely guy. I feel bad, I can't remember his name, it was a bunch of years ago. But he said he starts all of his, uh, he's, he does individual coaching. And in every first conversation with his clients, he says, okay, so at some point in the conversation, he says, so what are we going to do when it turns out the problem is you? Going back to toxic culture. So, right, how do I, 
you know, I'm a coach and um, what, what are some of the things that I can help my clients process or understand or figure out a system for themselves that'll help them, you know, kind of almost like speak up in toxic cultures where you're really having a very beginning conversation. Like, you know, remember the example that you had in your book? Well, so let me say a couple of things about that, because I think, first of all, we have to we have to define our terms, which is most of the time when people think about toxic culture, they have an association that it's this like high paced, brutal, inhumane something where the people kept around are jerks and whatever, whatever. And when I see those cultures, I, I agree with that perception in some ways. But what I see when I look at those cultures is they're so slow. They're so inefficient. They're actually so low performing. And so like, oh, well, we're moving too fast and blah, blah, blah. blah. I was like, that's actually not your problem. The problem is you're way too slow. And you don't and you're 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 completely missing a set of cycles that's part of the conversation. And so I, I try not to buy into the to the knowledge of like, well, well, we can't afford coaching because we we just move too quickly. Really? Tell me about more about that. Then you actually talk to the people it's like, well, we're terrible at making decisions, you know, where there's cost overruns on every project, we have too much bloat and all these kinds of things. And so to me, and this may sound uh, controversial, I don't know, but most of the time when I see a toxic culture, there's actually something deeper going on, which is you have people who really care about the results. They just don't know how to talk about that. They don't know how to articulate what high performance looks like to them. And so as a result of not being able to articulate it in the ways that we've already been talking about for the last while, they hit people over the head with a proverbial frying pan mentally and emotionally. What they're really trying to get at is high performance, but they don't know how to do it. And so the net result is toxic culture but it's coming from a place where those people, oftentimes when you talk to those CEOs, CTOs, they actually have a really high standard for what their expectations are. They just have no idea how to articulate it. And they have no ability to modulate their own standard and say, okay, well, here's how I care. Here's how I show up in the world. Here's what I value. But guess what? You know what? I have all the incentives. I'm one of the founders or I've got this equity package or whatever the thing is, right? So my context is different than theirs. How do I create context that makes sense for them? And that's oftentimes what, you know, what I see for, and, and then of course, there are times where we just do bad math. There's a leader who's toxic and we think we make, you know, we've all done it. Oh, well, I can't fire that per I know they're a jerk, but we can't fire them because X, Y, and Z because of this performance. And it's, it's wrong. It's stupid. It's bad math because we're not calculating all the harm that they're doing, right? We're only looking at one side of the ledger. We look at, oh, well, they deliver X. Yeah, but they're costing Y. And Y is way higher, right? So we don't, we're not good at math uh, at those. There's, there's, there's very poor sources of data to be able to say, oh, leader X is toxic. Yes, they create you know, 3.2 units of upside, but they create 7.8 units of downside. Bye-bye. Right? It's a hard calculation to make. We don't have good data on it. So we tend to, tend to in, inaction persists for too long. Yeah, and we tend to perpetuate it and enable it and by even inaction. Um, so let me um, ask you this. 
I'm a manager and my, my father or my, you know, leader is kind of like this. And I've tried pretty much every other small things. I've tried to talk to other people. I've tried to talk to HR. Nothing's working. And I'm at like the limit. What do I do then? Uh, look at your checkbook and see in your checking account. See, like, how's your... No, how's your... don't ask me to look at my checkbook. <laughs> how's, your, how's your financial situation? What's your what's your threshold for risk? What do you really want to do in your life if you if you stayed in this job for another year? Uh, do you do you need to? Because that's a real question. Like I I was in that situation where I was at my limit. I could not afford to quit. I had my first young child, and I couldn't afford it. Right, so I had to you know eat eat it for a year longer than I wanted to, year and a half longer yeah. than I wanted to, before I felt comfortable enough that I could take the risk and do something new. So, you know, we got to be very practical about this. Not everybody can afford to do that. I couldn't at that time. Uh, but if you can, why aren't you? What are you waiting for? If you, if you really tried, and, you know, I'll just say from my own experience, even if you think you have, you haven't. Even if you think you've tried, you probably, let me say it this way, you probably haven't really put it on the line in terms of like the limit that we were describing before. So I went to my boss at the time when I had sort of organized my checking account to the place where I felt like, okay, I can take the hit. I can, I can go do something new. If they fire me based on this conversation that I'm about to have, I'm going to survive. And that's really the criteria. And then I went into that, to the, the CEO's office at the time. And I said, look, we've been having this conversation. I was using the accountability dial with him to share the things that I felt needed to change about the organization in order for me to feel good about staying. And I said to him, I said, look, I'm at my limit. Like I've, I've raised it. We've talked about this. We've had these conversations. You've made some promises. You seem like a nice guy, but I don't see any action. And I'm, and it's like, it's just, it's not enough for me anymore. So I'm like, I'm, it's not that I'm done being frustrated, but I'm done talking to you about it. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm at, you know, I'm just like, I don't know. I got nothing else left to give. I didn't quit, but I basically said like, I'm out. And, uh, and that was my way of, in, of taking ownership of the situation for myself so that I knew that there was, I left nothing on the table. I said everything that I wanted to say. I had taken care of myself. I protected my family. I was ready for him to be like, okay, jerk, get out of here. I didn't say it me. I was nice. I was respectful. But I said, hey, you're not doing, you're not doing the things that are enough for me to feel like putting my name on this, this thing anymore. And that was the end for me, right? But I learned something about myself in the process that I wouldn't have learned if I just walked out the door and said, you know, to hell with them. Right, right, right. So it was a moment of uh, inaction to action, but it was just thoughtful. It was intentional. It was, you know, I'm going to do some level of self-preservation. I'm going to have like a plan around this and then I'm going to go have, have a chat. And if the leader is able to listen and then, hey, great, then we pivot and we do something about it. And if they don't, then I just do what I needed to do a year ago. One of the books that I didn't write, although I came, I like coming up with the titles for books and not writing the books. So one of the, one of those books was, should I stay or should I go? Uh, like the old clash quote, because I think it's a really, uh, it's a really common question. And I think there's a, there's not a, there's not a right answer but there's a right answer for anyone in a particular situation. And so for me, there have been times where I needed to go 
And there have been times where I needed to stay. And, and, and staying when I didn't want to stay, right? That 18 months that I stayed up until that moment where I realized, okay, now I got to go. There was, that was preceded by 18 months where I really wanted to go and I didn't. And I stayed and I learned more about myself in that 18 months than I would have if I just left because I was frustrated and found another job. I would have just recreated the same dynamic somewhere else. So my, my greatest accomplishment is I've never recreated that dynamic. Which is huge in itself. I think you should write the book, Should I Stay or Should I Go? So on, on that note, because I almost feel like the, the, this whole idea, good authority or whatever future book you write, it's almost like a recipe for life. It's not giving people the right answers or wrong answers, but it's just giving people different recipes to go and explore and if initially find more about themselves and then figure out what's important to them and listen to their instincts. What's your recipe for life, Jonathan? Uh, I'm going to share with you my recipe for life as manifests as the refounds core values. Choose in, reflect on, ripple out. Choosing in means wherever you are in your life, be there, be in, speak up, speak your mind, listen deeply, challenge others, challenge yourself. Don't fall victim to paralysis by analysis. Go for it. Whatever it is, go for it. Go all in. That's choose in. Then reflect on. Learn about yourself from the choices that you make. Oh, wow. Well, that was really stupid. Or that was really brave. That was really courageous. That was really uh, thoughtful. That was really careless. That was really right. Whatever, right? Choose in. Live a life of asking for of asking for forgiveness, not asking for permission, right? So choose in, reflect on, learn something about yourself, share, and then share what you've learned with other people. Ripple out. How do you contribute what you've learned about yourself? Don't keep it inside. Find a vehicle, find a forum. Doesn't mean you have to be write a TED Talk, although if you have a TED Talk in you, go for it. But find a way to share that idea with another person or people in your family, your friends, a social group, in your community, in your office, with your team, what have you. So that's, uh, that's my recipe. Choose in, be 100% in whatever you do, give it all, reflect on, learn about yourself, learn about the choices that you make, learn everything about every experience. And then ripple out, share with others your learnings and share whatever creative forum, even if it's just sharing with your partner. Yep. Okay. I love it. It's just going to be on a post-it note on my Mac. Okay. Two saying, just like Tom, ripple out. I love that. Maybe we'll make, maybe we'll make some cards. We can send them around. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this really amazing conversation. I had so much fun. I didn't even realize it's been like, and at least over an hour that you and I started talking. So thank you for being here. Thank you for making the time. And I really, you know, there's a reason I loved uh, Refound and everything uh, that you bring. And I'm so glad we are partners. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, getting to share some space with your listeners. And I hope it was helpful. 
Hey, this is Deepa again. I hope you really enjoyed my show today. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation. If you'd love to get in touch with me or my guest or would like the show notes, resources or links, please reach out to me on my website. I would also love 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 your feedback. Until next time.